I think the end goal is every dog comes from a good place. We want to revolutionize where people get their animals from. Every puppy should come from a happy mother. That's it. It's very, very basic. Welcome to the Breeder Tales. I'm your host, Liza Moon, and this is the podcast where dog breeders have unscripted conversations about things that actually matter to us. I'm so tired of being told what's important to me. Like, let's talk about things that keep me up at night. Every month, I'll bring you real conversations with real dog breeders just like you and I. I will bring you the industry experts and special guests that you want to hear from. It's time for somebody in this industry to start shaking things up a little bit, and I am here for it. How about you? Hi, breeders. My name is Liza, and I'm Telltale's head of community. Telltale is an online platform for dog breeders. Telltale's membership for breeders offers breeder certification, buyer lead generation, education, mentorship, and community. Our breeder support team members are all professional dog breeders themselves. Visit www.telltale.com, that's T-E-L-L-T-A-I-L.com, for more information. Today you will hear an interview between myself and John Goodwin, who is the head of the Stop Puppy Mills campaign for the Humane Society of the United States. John, or JP, shares inside information about some of his experiences in fighting the good fight and the progress that the Humane Society of the United States has made on stopping the sale of puppies in pet stores in the United States. We will also hear about how the Humane Society views responsible breeding and how their efforts support responsible breeders who care about their animals. Breeders, this episode contains some discussions about animal neglect and abuse. Even though I know that animal cruelty exists in the world today, my breeder heart has trouble hearing about it sometimes. So I wanted to give my community a heads up before the episode begins. I hope you keep listening because I want you to learn more about what Telltale and the Humane Society of the United States are doing to stop the sale of puppies in pet stores in the United States and put puppy mills out of business. I'm here today with JP Goodwin. He is the head of the Stop Puppy Mills campaign for the Humane Society of the United States. How are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. And thank you for being here. I'm really excited to talk to you um, so that we can learn as breeders what the, what the Humane Society is doing to stop puppy mills and support responsible breeders. Um, wow. So can you briefly introduce yourself and just explain your role at the Humane Society? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a longtime staffer at HSUS now. I was hired actually in the year 2000. So I've been here over 23 years and I've had many hats in the organization during that time. But now I run our Stop Puppy Mills campaign. And um, it's a pretty robust campaign. Right now our focus is on ending the sale of puppies in pet stores for reasons that I imagine we'll probably get into later in the conversation. So what what inspired you to become an advocate against puppy mills and come into this role? So I actually got involved in animal advocacy when I was 16 years old in a, in a you know, real organized way, learning about all of these different issues that affect animals. But the value is instilled in me from my grandmother from a very early age. She was always very, very passionate about animals. She had miniature horses, ducks, guinea fowl, peacocks, chickens, goats, etc. Of course, dogs. Uh, she was a very, very small scale dog breeder in the sense that she had a couple of litters of pugs um, in the 80s. I ended up, one of those, Max, ended up being my dog. Uh, so you know, I had a very exposure to dog breeding at a very early age. I also remember going with her when she was buying a dog for one of my cousins, and I remember going to you know, a little small scale breeder, uh, never heard of anything like a puppy mill. And um, though in hindsight, I remember in ninth grade having a friend who met this, this girl who was, you know, our age at the time, about 14, and her mom sold puppies at a flea market. 
every weekend. And in hindsight, I'm wondering, well, I must, she must have had a puppy mold because she had so many puppies that she could sell at that flea market every single weekend, no matter what. So, you know, but I never went to her house, never saw it or anything like that. But I come into the world of animal advocacy and I ended up, uh, I was living in Dallas and I was uh, living with someone who was working for some, for a local attorney who was investigating puppy mills in Texas. And so she went to visit a few um, and I, I went along. And so that's when I really started to get more of a knowledge of the issue. Uh, wow. I, I can personally say I've never been to a puppy mill and I hope I never have to see that. Um, do you mind sharing like, what what is your what is your core memory from that experience yeah so a uh, lot of red flags you know because we went as as potential customers and she lived in this small home and there were i think i remember maybe four playpens in the living room area each one filled with litters of puppies and then you could hear huge numbers of dogs barking from the back she didn't want us to see back there she didn't want us to go back there, but I was able to steal a peek. And, um, you know, it's just rows of these little buildings with the uh, little indoor-outdoor runs with small little, I don't know what the enclosures were like on the inside, but the structures were small, so they had to be small enclosures on the, on the inside. And then a little uh, small enclosure on the outside with, uh, you know, two levels. Um, so dogs caged along the top and then dogs caged along the bottom. And then there were a lot of those little houses. Now. A couple of years later, she was doing similar work. Uh, this was my girlfriend at the time. And she uh, went to one of these uh, puppy mills and they were about to kill this little Yorkshire Terrier. Uh, she's a teacup Yorkie. She's eight and a half years old. No breeding value left. So we ended up adopting her. Like uh, they just gave her that dog for free. It's like, okay, sure. You like you, you like Yorkies, you can take that Yorkie. So that was Delilah. And so that was my experience with rehabilitating a puppy mill dog who was not used to walking on grass. I mean, I remember the first time we took her in grass, she freaked out and like got away and like, you know, I had to like chase her down before she got out of the park and, you know, into the street or something like that. Very nervous dog. But over time, over time, she did, you know, adapt um, and yeah, she had a good life. So, uh, you know, but I got to see the long-term effects that, inhumane housing has on these dogs so you not only firsthand got to you you saw this situation but you had experience with with a dog that came from that lifestyle i mean shoot that dog was there for a long time in in condition oh, yeah. similar conditions did you know that anything like that existed did you know that that people kept dogs that way how did it make you feel did it, was it immediately when you saw it, was it like, wow, that's horrible, that's wrong? Or was it like, hmm, that's a different way to, to do this? I didn't know that that's how people did this. What, I mean, what were you, what did you think? Well, I knew that there was cruelty and abuse in the world. Uh, and, you know, I'd heard many stories. I, you know, I grew up in Tennessee in the, in the 80s. And you know, I was born in the 70s, the 70s and 80s as a kid. And, you know, I heard stories of people like, Oh, you know, so-and-so dog got pregnant because, you know, they didn't mean to breed the dog, but they didn't spay or neuter their animals and one got pregnant. So he shocked the puppies in a garbage can. You know, I'd hear stories like that. So I, I was aware that there was abuse at the individual level with, with people who just were callous towards animals. What I didn't quite understand was how this translated to big industries who would raise animals in inhumane manners, inhumane manners just as a part of the standard operating uh, procedures. Uh, whether we're talking about, you know, a whole range of issues, it could be factory farming, it could be fur farming, it could be puppy mills, all of them are very similar in that you have folks who are trying to maximize production in the amount of space they have. So they cram as many animals into the buildings they have, the acres they have, so they can have the highest level of production. And that just leads to all sorts of problems. I didn't understand that uh, when I started reading about those things, it, it made sense to me and, you know, and it wasn't shocking in that regards. I, you know, it's like, okay, well, of course people do this. It's terrible, but I can see why they're doing it that way. And, and it's a problem that should be stopped, but it, but I wasn't completely flabbergasted. 
thank you for sharing all of that. That's just our, I think, our first kind of inside peek at, at some of the things that you do. Can you share one of your latest success stories with the, the Stop Puppy Mills campaign? So we're very focused <clears throat> right now, <clears throat> excuse me, I was clearing my throat there, very focused on stopping the sale of puppies in pet stores, because almost all puppies come in pet stores come from puppy mills. So we just had a big vote in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, they were the most recent locality to prohibit the sale of puppies in pet stores. And this was a particularly noteworthy event because we knew that there were two puppy stores there. But then Petland was coming in and trying to open up a third. And they had gotten a lease at a local mall. And so we were able to get the ordinance through. And uh, they, they've announced they're not going to be bringing that Petland store there, which is good news for us. Because every time Petland opens up, we end up hearing from people with, bought sick puppies at a really high price, so couldn't afford the price. So they signed up for one of the third-party financing programs Petland offers and then realized they had a 120% interest rate on it. I mean, you wouldn't believe, you wouldn't believe the, the number of awful things that we hear. Uh, so that was like a really big, a really big win. And the final vote, I think was 21 to three, but it was actually closer than that because there was an amendment offered that would have gutted the ordinance. And that amendment was defeated 10 to 13. 10 yes for the bad amendment, 13 no. So that was the real vote. It was actually closer than the final vote uh, indicates. That is a huge accomplishment. How many puppies can a pet store like Petland, Petland is a a, ch a chain yeah. or a franchise of some kind. It's all over the United States. How many stores can one, I mean, how many puppies can one of those stores um, sell in a year? Do you know, do you have any idea? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that most puppy stores do 500 to 1,000 a year, but there are some pet lands that do up to 2,000 a year. Uh, wow. And we know this because, A, sometimes when there's a city council hearing or something like that, a franchisee or someone from Petland Corporate will come in and, and give some data. But also the city of Frisco, Texas, right outside of Dallas, did an ordinance a few years ago after an HSUS undercover investigation, in fact, into the Petland store there. They did an ordinance that uh, required Petland to provide certain information to the city and to consumers. And one of those uh, data points was annual sales. And so we know that store is doing 2,000 puppies a year. So that's got to be like oh six gosh. a day, you know, every oh single day. Uh, and you know, on the weekdays, they're probably selling fewer. So the weekends, they must be just pumping them out left and right. Wow. That's that's a lot. Even 500 to 1,000 is a lot. Let's dive into understanding how the Humane Society defines puppy mills, backyard breeders, and then responsible breeders. So let's start with how the Humane Society defines a puppy mill. Yeah, so rough rough definition, commercial dog breeding kennel, uh, where the basic needs of the dogs are not being met because uh, wealth is being put before welfare. Uh, corners are cut to keep costs low maximize puppy production. Usually these are larger operations. Um, and there's a lot of sales mediums that puppy mills really like. I think everyone listening to this podcast is probably familiar with this, but you know, the puppy mills will sell to a broker who resells to a pet store, or they'll sell to a pet store, or they'll they'll ship all their puppies just, you know, in an airplane to people. Maybe they'll have a flea market booth. Maybe they'll run ads on Craigslist and meet in Burger King parking lot. All of those keep customers away from where the dogs are. So, so they can't see where all the dogs are coming from. That's the one thing they all have in common. Um, and I think that's an, I think that's something that really distinguishes a puppy mill from a responsible breeder. You know, a responsible breeder is going to, you know, get to know the person they're selling a puppy to. Uh, if it doesn't work out, we're going to take the puppy back, <clears throat> that kind of thing. Uh, it's not going to happen with the puppy mill. It's just not. Um, so, you know, I think I think there's a very clear, clear line of demarcation between a puppy mill and a responsible breeder. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think there's, I don't think there's a lot of gray area when it yeah. comes to puppy mill versus, versus uh, responsible breeder. Now, I do think there's a lot of gray area when it comes to puppy mill versus backyard breeder. So, First of all, is is backyard breeder, is that a term that the Humane Society even uses? Um, and 
And if, if so, or, you know, either way, I mean, how do you, how do you define that? And, and what are the differences in your eyes between puppy mill and backyard breeder? Well, the definition challenge that you're pointing to is, is why we don't really use that term. I mean, you might have a staffer that every once in a while, you know, it comes out in a conversation just because it is a term that a lot of people use. Um, but we generally just don't use that term because it is hard to define. And if you're a backyard puppy mill, we're just going to call you a puppy mill, right? Um, but if you've got uh, three dogs that live in your house and you have litter every once in a while, but they like to spend a lot of time in the backyard, does that make you a backyard breeder? Uh, I don't know, maybe, but that's not really the kind of thing we have a problem with, right? So, um, so we we don't use that term just because it doesn't really fit the uh, the narrative for us. Um, it's not an ideological objection to someone using the term. It just doesn't fit the 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 way that we are presenting the issue. In, in my experience, in online breeding communities, I think the term is thrown around um, as a way to to bully people and and put people down. I don't I don't think it actually means a whole lot. I mean, um, like you said, if if somebody's a backyard breeder in the sense where they've got kennels or cages in their backyard and they're pumping out as many puppies as they can. That's, that's, that's a puppy mill. Let's just keep it simple. It's a puppy mill. Right. And, and then again, to your, to your other point, if somebody has got a few dogs and they're having a litter or two a year and, and you know, okay, they're not, they're not doing all the health testing. They're not showing the dogs. They're not, you know, um, selling the puppies with contracts, whatever. Those are things that responsible breeders find kind of yucky. Yeah. But those people, those people aren't, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, you know more about this than me, but those people aren't contributing to the, um, to the problem that puppy mills contribute to, which is creating dogs that are, are for retail sale. Yeah, I think, I think that's right. I mean, there, there are, I know some people right now raising funds to do a uh, in-depth study to try to find out where puppies really come from. Right now, <clears throat> the American Pet Products Association does a survey, I think every year, maybe it's every other year, and they ask people where they get their dogs from, and they'll say, you know, 30% breeder, 4% pet store, 28% shelter, et cetera, et cetera. But that's, when you when you have the shelter and rescue component in there, that means that they're surveying where you get dogs from. These people, they're looking, doing this study, and we're going to give them some funding for it, want to know where puppies are coming from. Where are puppies coming from? That's a very, very different thing. Let's take adult adult, uh, adult dogs who are getting their second chance at a good home out of the survey and make sense see where puppies are really coming from. Right now, we don't have good hard data on that. But I think we can roughly say there's puppy mills, responsible breeders. And then there's this kind of other category that probably accounts for a huge number of dogs out there. This kind of murky middle that of people who aren't puppy mills, but you know they they don't do the genetic testing and they don't know all the things that that really good breeders know. Uh, maybe sometimes it's just due to lack of education. Maybe sometimes it's due to uh, resources. You know, people who are in poverty, but you know they're producing some litters to get a little side income in the neighborhood. I think a lot of dogs are coming from those kind of places. And with those people, I think that uh, education can go a long way, you know, helping them out, helping them get up to the next level. So you do think there's a there's a pretty large demographic of breeders that some might define as backyard breeders that are contributing to this issue of, of, over, of overpopulation, um, which, which is really just a, a more saturated pet market. Yeah, and the on the number of dogs in shelters, it's kind of like the stock market, you know, it's up, it's down, it's up, it's down. Uh, prior to the pandemic, the trajectory had been going the right way for a long time. And the number of healthy, adoptable animals who were euthanized or killed, frankly, uh, was going down steadily. The pandemic happened, and at first, um, shelters, you know, started really empty out, uh, and, you know, we all know about the pandemic puppy boom and all that. Well, now we're on the other end. We're, we're looking at the other side of the coin. The pandemic puppy boom is open. Now there's market saturation. People are having a hard time sometimes having, uh, you know, a single puppy from a litter sold. Shelters are filling back up. 
So more dogs are coming into shelters. There's fewer adoptions. So the euthanasia rate is starting to go back up. Now, uh, when you look at the animal shelter population, if, if I was in a community and, and I just had my heart set on breeding dogs, I'd want to know what kind of dogs are in the shelter. And, and, and I wouldn't breed that kind of dog, right? So if someone wants to, um, how do you pronounce that breed? Catan de Tulier? I can't even pronounce that one. But I don't know either, but I know yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. They're real cute. <laughs> I don't think that someone having a litter of Catans is going to contribute to the shelter population. I do think if you're having a litter of Pitbulls, you're going to contribute to the shelter population. I have uh, three dogs. Two of them are Pitbulls, um, one from a rescue, one from a shelter. A lot of them in there. There's other breeds, you know, Chihuahuas, you know, down south, where I grew up, certain areas have a lot of like, you know, some hound type dogs, hunting dogs. Maybe don't breed the kind of dog that's really filling up your local shelter. Let those dogs have a chance meeting the demand for, for that type of dog. Um, that would be my view on it. I appreciate you being candid about those topics, puppy mill versus backyard breeder, and understanding that the Humane Society doesn't actually really use that term. Right. Um, and I think that's fair. I, I do think it's a really subjective term. We've also kind of talked about, you know, the, the differences between responsible breeders and puppy mills. Um, but do you mind expanding on that just a little bit more? You know, there's, there's a really, I feel like it's, it's pretty black and white puppy mill versus responsible yeah. breeder. Yeah. And then there's a lot of gray area. So like, where do you, even even on a personal level, um, where do you draw the line? Like, okay, this this person is responsible, not responsible. Where do you draw that line? Well, it does get down to how the individual dogs are cared for. Um, the smaller person is going to have a much easier time caring for their dogs. A person with a lot of dogs is going to have a harder time caring for all the dogs. Uh, so, so I think that volume is, has to be part of the conversation, the volume of adult dogs that are there. Yeah, you can have 100 dogs and have 10 staff in theory, but could you do it economically? Uh, not if you're selling to pet stores because they're only giving you 200 bucks a puppy. Um, I, I don't think so. I don't think people can really do that number of dogs, that high volume of dogs in a way that is in any way humane. But Let's go back to that dog, Delilah, who I adopted, that Yorkshire Terrier that had come from the puppy mill. So we got her in the year 2000. She she wasn't well fed. You know, she, I could see like her, her hip bone sticking out. Uh, that's not a lot of puppy mills feed their dogs. It's not it's not saying that that's necessarily the only sign. You know, if, if they're well fed, it's not a puppy mill. It's not the case at all. But, but they hadn't fed her well. Her teeth had rotted out. Something had happened to her lower jaw so that it was only partially there. I don't know what. Um, and she, she had a hard time with stairs and grass and carpet and things that she had never touched before and seen. Now, if you had another dog who maybe was bred a bunch of times, but lived in a house, went on walks, walked on a boardwalk, ran in a grass yard, um, you know, went to the family reunion, met other people, was well socialized, that's a dog who could go into a new home and uh, I'm sure miss the old family. But other than that, adapt really well. That, therefore, that's, that, that dog doesn't carry that sort of trauma. Therefore, that dog was not from a puppy mill. So to me, it all comes down to the experience of the individual dogs. And I realize that that doesn't, we can't just ask them, you know, <laughs> but we can tell from their behavior and how they react to things and all that if they've had uh you know, you, you can make a good guess on whether or not a dog has endured some sort of stress or trauma. Once again, I appreciate that perspective. Um, uh, and I appreciate it on a, on a deep level. I mean, I've been breeding for 11 years. My dogs live, there's one right over here with puppies um, that are about a day old. And uh, they live in our house. Um, we've, we, we have used um, guardian homes in the past, and I, I'd love to get your opinion on that. Um, that model as well. But I mean, largely our dogs live with us and either stay with us or they go to family members or, or whatever. And so, you know, I want to point out that this, this idea that what makes a breeder responsible is the fact that they title their dogs or they health test their dogs. And yeah, those are, those are 
significant things. Um, those are important things, especially the health testing, yeah. I think is important. We have those tools available to us. I believe we should use them um, no matter what. But, you know, a, a lot of readers come up with these like just very arbitrary rules. Well, if you title and health test your dogs and you breed to the breed standard and you sell your puppies with a contract and you take back puppies if, if they're no longer wanted, then you're responsible. And if you can prove all of those things, you're responsible. But what you're not proving is how the dogs are treated. Yeah. Those dogs could be abused. They could still be living in cages in the backyard. Yeah, and and who's who can measure that? Who can who? I mean, how do you prove that necessarily? Unless you're just you just have an open door and just a revolving door of people um, coming through your home. I mean, your literal home. You yeah. know. So um, I like the perspective of it. it for for you, it comes down to the adult dogs and how they're treated. Yeah. How how they how they're socialized. Um, they're able to go on and live completely fulfilled lives. They're not thrown away when they're done breeding. Um, they're able to go and transition into a different life successfully. Um, I I like that. I think a lot of people focus. Um, I think a lot of breeders focus too much on. Well, if you do this, 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 and this, then you're responsible. That leaves a lot of room for a lot of bad things to still be going on. Puppy mills um, utilize health testing as well yeah, in, that's in, true. in a lot of instances. That's true. Does that make them responsible? <laughs> yeah. Petland has even set up uh, conferences with, uh, uh, like, for example, certain state commercial dog breeding associations where they talk about Okay, well, you know, we should probably, uh, you know, be testing for hip dysplasia and this breed and that breed. So, so even they, uh, people who are keeping dogs in tiny little cages uh, and, and and barely letting them out, uh, finally starting to recognize the the genetic testing. Which, you know, I guess that it's a good thing the genetic testing is proliferating so much, but it's not the it's not the beginning and the end of defining what's a, the difference between a puppy mill and a responsible breeder. I think more people are aware that puppy mills exist. Um, I think what people, I, and I think that the vast majority of people know puppy mills exist and the vast majority of people are opposed to puppy mills. The disconnect comes from understanding how to avoid getting a dog from a puppy mill. I mean, there's a lot of people who go into uh, a store like Petland or an independent uh, puppy selling pet store and they know puppy mills are bad. They're a little suspicious but the salesperson gives them a good pitch, assures them they don't use puppy mills and they, they, and they believe it and they buy the puppy. Uh, we get calls from people all the time who, who their puppy has come home and come to find out he's got you know extreme case of Giardia infection or something worse. And then they're like, well, I finally Googled the breeder on the paperwork and I didn't realize that it was, it was a puppy mill. So people really have a hard time um, you know, making that connection, especially when the salesperson is is saying, no, 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 no. We only use the highest quality USDA licensed inspectors, not not telling them that under the USDA regulations, you can keep a dog in a cage only six inches longer than their body your entire life. I mean, it's, it's a joke standard. Uh, but, the, you know, sales customer doesn't know that. Customer doesn't know that when they walk in. I, I don't blame them. You know, our, we, we tell people, no. Don't yell at the person that bought the puppy at the store. They didn't know better. You know, we got to focus on the real issue here. And they're just, they're victims too. They all, they always feel guilty when they find out. But we did some, we've done some advertising campaigns in various places. And sometimes, not every time, but sometimes we'll do a poll before we run the ads. And then another poll after we've run the ads to see how it shaped public opinion. And when we've run uh, TV ads and shown where, you know, the, the the link between these puppy selling stores and puppy mills, it shifted public opinion about 10 points, uh, which is already pretty good in our favor. It shifts about 10 points, no matter which way we ask the question. So raising awareness does work. That's very, very encouraging. So let's dive in on the Humane Society's focus on, on legislation that is aimed at stopping the sale of puppies in pet stores. And I want to be specific about that because we'll get into in in a in a couple minutes here how that legislation is not affecting responsible dog breeders right um 
but but first let's let's talk about why the humane society focuses so heavily on pet stores and pet store legislation so i've been at the hsus we may say united states for a very long time i didn't get to the puppy mills campaign until january of 2016 though previously i've been on the capitol hillside lobbying and i've also uh worked in our animal fighting campaign for a long time so i get to the puppy mill issue and that's when these local ordinances that stop to stop the sale of puppies and pet stores really starting to get some momentum. I was also aware that my colleagues at HSUS who'd been in the puppy mills campaign before me had spent years trying to get laws enacted in various states to have basic standards of care in commercial dog breeding kennels. So I'm looking around at the landscape. And I realized that 80% of the USDA licensed commercial breeders are in just seven, they're in seven states. 80% are in seven states. So in uh, it's Missouri, Ohio, Indiana, Ohio, Arkansas, Kansas, Iowa, and Oklahoma, I believe, are the top seven. All of those states have very large agricultural economies. And in all of those states, big agribusiness is disproportionately in, influential. And these big ag groups don't want any animal protection measures to advance because they're afraid that if a dog in a puppy mill can have a couple extra inches of space, then heaven forbid, next thing you know, egg laying hens might be required to have enough room to flap their wings. And I guess that somehow that means the sky's falling. I, I think egg laying hens should have enough room to flap their wings, but they disagree. But the point is, is that getting the reform in the areas where it was needed the most was like pushing a boulder up the hill. But they have to sell those puppies somewhere. And a lot of them are being sold through pet stores. So we decided, okay, okay. If the uh, uh, commercial pet breeding industry doesn't want to work with us to get dogs in cages that are slightly larger than six inches longer than their body, then we'll, we'll use a market-oriented approach, both to educate people about how to avoid buying from puppy mills and instead find either responsible breeders or a rescue or a shelter, and um, also to simply prohibit sale of puppies in pet stores. So we began that work uh, and, and we've gotten a lot of, we've got seven states now that have passed that at state level, no sale of puppies and pet stores, 477 localities. But we also found some other reasons why we're glad we chose that focus. We started putting undercover investigators into various puppy selling stores, um, about eight pet lands and a couple independents. And we discovered that there were massive animal welfare problems beyond the puppy mill issue. Uh, first off, the transport, the Centers for Disease Control started investigating the outbreak of a zoonotic disease linked to Campylobacter bacteria in 2017. They, and it kept, it was an active investigation until COVID came along and they had to stop and focus on COVID. But uh, they described the transportation from the stores or, I mean, from the puppy mills or brokers to the stores as being a cesspool. They said there's massive sanitation problems. So you got these baby animals, immature immune systems, co-mingled in a cargo van with up to 160 puppies, all from different kennels. They're all in that tight enclosed area, breathing the same air. One of them's bringing something with it. The other puppies with him or her, the other puppies are gonna be exposed to it. Also, breeders know how often puppies pee and poop. Well, guess what? That cargo van driver's not stopping every two hours to let 160 puppies out to do business. So sanitation becomes awful. So you get to the stores and a lot of them are sick. So that was the second leg of the three-legged stool problems. Puppy mills was the first leg. The transport was the second. Then the third was the in-store treatment. You got a lot of 18-year-olds and 19-year-olds that get hired at, puppy, at these puppy stores for good reasons. They, they live puppies. They don't know what they're getting themselves into. They care. And they're not the problem. The problem's the big dogs, the big guys, right? Not the big dogs. I was using that term for the, <laughs> the store owners and whatnot. But uh, those kids aren't the problem. Those kids get in there, though, and they're burdened with providing the care. Uh, in one Petland store in Georgia, the teenage employees were given a medicine bottle or someone, it was you know one of those little kind of orangish medicine bottles you can't really see through, but then a homemade label that just said the cure. And they were just giving that to puppies who were sick. Ad hoc treatment. Another place, the store owner was telling the employees to give the puppies who were sick antibiotics. She had a big uh, uh, plastic jug of a bird antibiotic. Now, I'm sure the antibiotic can work in dogs, but this 
formula was designed for birds and the dosage instructions on the container were for birds and they're sitting there winging it, you know? And so then we started finding dead puppies and freezers, that kind of thing, because the stores and we got store employees on tape saying, well, puppies die because the owner won't take them to the vet until the very last second because, you know, the vet bill would gobble up all the profits. So we found in-store treatment to be a problem. And then as we started thinking about it, and I adopted two puppies, um, you know, my two pit bulls, they both came to me as puppies. And uh, and I got, I was interacting with them in their eighth, ninth, tenth, and eleventh weeks of life. And it really hit me how inappropriate it would be to spend those weeks in a glass display case. Because those are, those are such formative weeks and that animal's be, behavioral and emotional development. So we're really focused on ending sale of puppies and pet stores now, not simply because the puppies come from puppy mills, but because the whole pipeline, the puppy mill to pet store pipeline is filled with problems. All I can say is, wow. We're succeeding. We're down from 900 puppy stores to about 565 in, over the last five wow. or six years. So it's, it's coming down. That's amazing. That's a huge accomplishment. When it comes to trying to get this um, legislation passed, I, it makes a lot of sense that the the um, you know big ag is, is behind a lot of this. Um, I don't think that is uh, common knowledge. I yeah. think I think people assume that that it's these it's these puppy mills, you know, owners of the puppy mills and the and the pet stores fighting, but but really it's it's the agricultural industry. What are some of the key pieces of that legislation that that destroys that pipeline? Like what specifically are you um, what specific things are are interrupting that? Yeah, so it's pretty simple actually. It's prohibiting the sale of puppies and pet stores, period. That's um, it. Yeah, you can still do an adoption event, you know, the shelter or the local rescue you can still go to Pet Smart with you know eight or nine dogs and display them to the public and that's good for the the pet smart or whoever the store is because if someone comes in and adopts a dog they're gonna need to buy some food and a bed and a leash and harness and uh, toys and treats and all sorts of stuff so it works out good for them uh, but that's simply it it's simply it stopping the sale of puppies in the stores um it, it's it's very simple and very effective and it's just not the place a puppy should be and so you are you are not particularly focused as an organization on legislation that limits the number of dogs somebody can have in their home or you know like i'm talking about state specific legislation i mean obviously you you probably get involved with some of that but your right. your primary focus is prohibiting the sale of puppies in pet stores yeah, because that's been the most effective at actually saving dogs. Give you some numbers. And, and and we do support strong standards of care for the dogs in commercial dog breeding kennels. But as I mentioned earlier, the states that need it the most are the states least likely to do it. So we had to pick an alternative approach. I'd like to be able to get right at the root of the problem. Uh, but it, what we have to do what's politically possible so that we can get changes for dogs, positive changes for dogs right now. Um, now, 2012, the average USGA licensed commercial dog breeding kennel had 87 adult breeding dogs, 87. That was before all these ordinances had passed. A couple of them were on the books then, like Albuquerque was 2006. I think the second one came in like 2009. So there may, I don't know how many were on the books in 2012, maybe like, you know, 20 or something like that. Just local, not much. We did the math on the numbers in 2022. The USDA inspection reports have what they call an inventory count. At the bottom of the report says how many dogs were there. So we're able to look at those numbers, uh, get a strong sample size, get a good geographic distribution. So, you know, if there's some quirk about Missouri that makes them different than Pennsylvania, that's accounted for in our math and average it out. 2012, so 2012 was 87 adult breeding dogs per kennel. 2022 is 57 adult dog breeding dogs per kennel. That's a decline of one third. And the only thing that's really happened I could think of during that time period that would 
change the trajectory of the size of these large-scale puppy mills is these ordinances and these state laws that prevent the sale of puppies and pet stores. So that means 32,000 fewer dogs are in puppy mills each year because of all these pet store sales ordinances. So we're big believers in it. Now, do I think that there should be caps? Sure. Uh, four states have caps, but they're usually like 50 dogs or something like that, you know, which is pretty high in my opinion, but uh, um, yeah, that'd be, that'd be great. Certainly uh, the USGA regulations need reform. We do have a bill in the Congress that would increase the cage size, ensure humane flooring, have some exercise requirements. The dogs aren't just confined all the time, uh, some breeding limits so that, you know, you, you can't get like, you know, your 20th litter out of a 10 year old dog. I don't know if that's biologically possible, but you know what I mean? Um, but it's just a harder boulder to get up the hill. So right now the focus is on the pet store side. Great, thank you. And and the reason I'm just like drilling into this question is because I think it's a huge misconception when it comes to how breeders, how responsible breeders view the Humane Society. I think that there is for some reason, and I'm not sure where this comes from or stems from, but I think there's just a widespread assumption that the Humane Society does not support breeding in any capacity. Um, and clearly that is not accurate, um, based on our conversation today, but I, I just, you know, I want to make it even more clear that like your focus is on pet stores, not breeders that are in their home that have dogs that take, that take good care of their dogs. In fact, we even have a breeder advisory resource council, which is made up of about a dozen uh, responsible breeders who give us their advice and input on a whole number of questions. Uh, we made a, a list of things, a little checklist for consumers who are purchasing a dog from a responsible breeder. And, and what went on that checklist came from our bark advisory members, the breeder advisory members, because they knew, they knew what needed to be on that checklist. We didn't know. We didn't know what needed to be on the checklist. There's, there's a couple of reasons that uh, people have that perception. Number one, you know, now we're seeing the animal shelter euthanasia rates go back up. And so you've got a lot of people out there who who would speak, well, I don't like any dog breeding because, you know, animals being killed in shelters. And I understand the numbers of dogs in the shelters versus the number of dogs that are purchased every single year. And there's a big gulf between the two numbers. There's definitely, you know, a lot of dogs that are being bred right now that meet demand that, that the animal shelter population can't meet. Uh, but if you're not a policy walk, really getting into the numbers of that, and you're just hearing about the shelter numbers uh, going up, then the first instinct for a lot of people is just to blame all breeders. So you can see why that is. So I think that feeds into the uh, perception that that's therefore our policy when it's not. The second reason that people left in that with that impression though is a little bit more darker. If you run a puppy mill um, and, and you're seeing some legislation coming that's going to require you to downsize from 250 dogs to 50 dogs and to double the cage sizes and to allow the dogs to walk on a solid surface sometimes as opposed to just wire flooring. One way to kill that legislation is to tell every dog breeder in the state that this is a sneak attack on all breeding, that they're next. And you get certain registries that will buy into that because that puppy mill might be registering a thousand puppies a year and therefore their voice is going to be more prominent with the registry than a responsible breeder is maybe registering, you know, 15 puppies a year. And so then you start to get political pressure from certain large registries who in, in, in the way they win is not to debate us on the merits of these issues, but to try to paint this picture of this scary boogeyman who's coming to take away all dogs. Well, I'm going to tell you right now, I love dogs. I don't want to live in a world where dogs don't exist. Obviously, if someone's not breeding them, they'll go extinct. So why would we be against that? That's uh, that's kind of like the age old, you know, adopt, don't shop um, mantra. You know, if we adopt all the dogs and stop breeding as well, we have no more dogs. Right. So they've got to come from somewhere. We right. want them to have good places. We don't want the mother dog to endure trauma. And when she's six years old and finally retired to be touching grass for the first time. I just can't even imagine. On on this note, 
there are a lot of breeders that, as as you've said, because of what I would consider to be like fear-mongering tactics by larger organizations that benefit from, for example, uh, puppy mills registering thousands of puppies with their organizations per year. Um, that's That's a lot of money, right? And so, as you mentioned, a lot of these organizations um get responsible breeders fired up about any new legislation yeah. this legislation is going to be passed you need to oppose it the reasons why we should oppose it are very vague typically if you actually go and read these bills they're pretty reasonable most of the time um one for example was just passed in texas if you have five or more intact dogs uh intact females in your home you've got to be licensed yeah i i don't personally find that unreasonable if you've got five or more intact females in your home chances are you're probably breeding or you know at the very least the risk of one of your dogs becoming accidentally pregnant is significantly higher than you know i mean what other reason do you have for having yeah. that many intact dogs maybe you're showing um and so that's that's what i want to touch on maybe you're a competitor and so you have these dogs intact for that reason you're you're advancing them along in their careers you want to see if they are good breeding prospects for for people like that um that are in those situations so spe maybe specifically competitors i mean what do you what do you have to say to them about the type of legislation that the humane society supports in particular so i haven't read the texas bill um to get into the nitty-gritty of I, i'm pretty sure that it's not just having five or more breeding uh, intact females. I think you have to be actively breeding, but if I'm wrong, I apologize. I know at the USDA level though, there's an expect you, you have to be, you have to be breeding them, uh, not just showing them. Um, I mean, obviously I can't think of any reason at all why anyone would be against showing bugs. Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, just, just basic standards of care that are common sense that any responsible person would adhere to but that a lot of these puppy mills would struggle to adhere to. I think those are good, good standards. Now on the fear mongering, I mean, we've seen, uh, you know, certain large registries oppose bills pertaining, uh, would stop people from leaving their dogs in hot cars because they say, well, someone who goes to the dog show, the dog has to sit in the car for 20 seconds while they go drop their stuff off. Oh, come on. We, we all know that's not what this is about. They've even opposed bills. This is shocking. We, we push bills to, criminalize all aspects of animal sexual abuse. And we've had that registry oppose us on those bills because they're afraid they would interfere with uh, the artificial insemination process. Well, here's an idea. If you think that we need to draft an amendment to protect you know, gathering semen, then draft an amendment, we'd be happy to accept it. Don't oppose the whole bill. <laughs> That's insane. So I, I just really wish that, you know, I guess this is true everywhere in America today, but I really wish that some more uh, common sense could prevail. Yeah, and and it's important, you know, when you see, I feel like it's important to do your, do your own research. When you see information being put out about these bills, go read the bill. Yeah, read the bill. Go, go, They're in their go website. read it. Right. The information, it's public. It's not like it's top secret information. It's there on the internet for you to read. Everybody has the internet. Go and read it and and see what it's, what it's actually about. Because a lot of times um, things are just so, so misunderstood and um, inflated in like very heated discussions. And that's how all these myths um, start perpetuating. So yeah, just, just go Go read this stuff. Maybe a really egregious example. But we had a bill, it wasn't even about dogs. It was in California to prohibit uh, trophy hunting of bobcats. It was to protect bobcats. Some hunters would use packs of dogs to tree the bobcat. And so one group put out an action alert. It wasn't a dog breeder group. It was a, uh, a group called Americans for Tax Reform. They put out an action alert saying that the bill would ban having your dog off leash out in the woods. Well, I guess the hunting dogs are off leash. That's true, but that's not what the bill did. The bill banned killing the bobcat. So we're we're used to seeing people really distort what the bills do. Yeah, that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, it's unfortunate for the people too that are that are not doing their own research because because yeah. yeah. you're living in a in a state of distress that's 
potentially not warranted. Just I, I would encourage any breeder listening, when you see information being publicized about these bills and this legislation, go read the legislation because yeah. more often than not, it probably doesn't affect you at all. And, and if it does, um, I would also encourage you to take a step back and say, well, you know, ask yourself, is this going to to help limit the number of irresponsible breeders out there? And is it going to really change how I how I run my business? I again, I really appreciate you being here to talk to us about all of this today. I hope that we can have you back sometime. Absolutely. This has been an excellent conversation, very eye opening. Um, and so yeah, if if you've got like one more minute to to answer this this last question, I all mean, right, let's do it. In terms of of the Humane Society, and and then of course, you know, your own personal um, your own personal goals. How do you envision the future of dog breeding in the United States? What is what's the end goal? I think the end goal is every dog comes from a good place. We want to revolutionize where people get their animals from. Every puppy should come from a happy mother. That's it. It's very, very basic. Now, the details, we can spend four hours talking about the details, but I think that end goal is one that uh, everybody in the world of responsible dog breeding and everybody in the animal protection, animal advocacy world would find we're shoulder to shoulder on that one. We really are. And uh, I, I'm optimistic because there's so much public support and love for dogs that I really do think that, that we can get all of the changes that are necessary for dogs. Might not be the case for every species of animal, but dogs, there's something special there. I think we can do it. I, I got chills when you said right. that. Well, fantastic. I, I, every puppy should come from a happy, happy mother. I love mm -hmm. that. Thank you again, JP. Thank you for joining me for another episode of The Breeder Tales. If you're a breeder who seeks community, education, and support, we would love for you to join the Telltale community. The best place to get started is in our Facebook group, Dog Breeders United. Will you join us? We would love to have you. If you're interested in learning more about Telltale and our breeder membership and certification program, please visit telltale.com. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-I-L.com. If you have questions about Telltale or are wondering if our membership is a good fit for you and your program, will you call us? Telltale's support team members are dog breeders too. Dial 213-322-0008 to speak with a support team member today. Oh, and you can email us too at hello at telltale.com. See you next time.